Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We, we are, are magical, magical fairy godmothers, godmothers in, in training. training. This week and the next, we're going to be telling stories about the jinn, those beings of fire, and magic. Betsy, would you like to share your story? I'd be delighted to. My story is a story about the jinn, but it's also a continuation of the story of the family of Tess and all the other magical beings that she's in connection with. So I hope you enjoy it. The jinn, part one. The package addressed for Tess arrived with the much-desired Icelandic postage on it through the Daily Mail. Sybil, Tess's mother, looked at the package and felt faint alarm. Its appearance was normal enough. Gudrun's Icelandic handwriting, so different in character from her American cousin's, was lovely. The package was decorated with twined leaves, clearly hand-drawn by Gudrun with colored art pens. Instead of leaves in some places were bind runes. Sybil's remembrance of bind runes was sketchy at best, but she could see that the purpose of the bind runes was binding. Not good fortune, not blessing. That made her a little nervous. Binding what? As she put it on the table in the hall for Tess to find, she gave it a little shake. A faintly irritated feeling came from the package. She shook it again. The irritated feeling intensified and then subsided. Was it alive? In some way, yes. Tess, she called. Gudrun sent you a package. Tess and Hildur came flying down the stairs from Tess's room on the second floor. What is it? asked Tess. I don't know, but I have the feeling... Never mind. What do you sense or see about it, Tess? Oh, Mom, can I just open it without scanning it first? Not this time, no. Gudrun only sends me good things. Not like Aunt Signe. Sybil agreed that this was usually true. Let Hildur check it out. The transmogrified goblin cat, twining around Sybil's feet, gave a snort and narrowed her eyes as the package was lifted down from the table and put closer to her. The coarse guard hairs on her back stiffened and she started to growl, a guttural growl. The feeling of irritation emanating from the package ceased abruptly, and the package began to smell like very smelly cat treats. 
Tessa's eyes widened, and she grabbed Hilda by her collar and pulled her back just as the cat lunged towards the package. The package leapt out of Sybil's hands and remained suspended in the air above the snapping and enraged cat. What in the world is in this package? asked Tess as she dragged Hilda to the basement door. After thrusting her down the stairs, she slammed the door closed on the wailing cat. I have a couple of ideas, but none of them are good, said Sybil with a slight edge in her voice. It's hard to imagine Gudrun sending me something bad. Maybe not bad, but definitely inconvenient. What do you mean? Let's take it into the still room and see. They went into her mother's still room, her room of magical preparations that was off of the kitchen. The muffled whining of Hilda could be heard through the basement door. Sybil firmly shut the door to the still room and snapped her fingers and gestured a circle around them. The cat treat smell ceased and the package exuded a different sense now of being normal, innocuous, and overlooked. Tessa's eyes widened. Her mother nodded with her mouth set in a wry smile. Very clever, she whispered. What is it? Or rather, who is it, said her mother. Let's open it and see. She pulled a big sheet of brown wrapping paper off of the roll in the still room that was used for packaging herbs. She laid it on the table, placed the package on the paper, and took out a couple of pens. Pull the lids off the pens, please, she said to Tess. Tess did so, and her mother said, draw a big square or rectangle around the package with both pens. At the same time or separately, asked Tess. You decide. Think of these squares, these lines, as the bars to a cage holding in whomever is in there. Nothing harsh, just containment until we see who it is. Tess thought about it for a moment and then drew a bronze-colored rectangle first. Bronze are these bars, she said, earning a nod from her mother. She took a silver pen and drew another rectangle around it. Silver are these bars, and these signify your worth, she said to the package. Sybil smiled admiringly at that. Nice touch, she whispered. She brought out a pair of stainless steel scissors and gave them to Tess. Start opening it and try to save the wrappings and vines intact. As soon as Tess brought the scissors close to the package, it resisted, creating a force field that repelled her hand and pushed the scissors back. It happened so fast she dropped the scissors with a clatter. Tess looked at her mother in alarm. Sybil thought for a moment and then went to a chest, which she opened and rummaged through until she found the flint knife she was looking for. Wickedly sharp, its handle was adorned with a badger skull, one of her mother's shapes that she shifted into. Use this carefully, she told Tess. Shouldn't you do it? No, it's your package. Maybe we should call Gudrun first. Very sensible idea, but let's open it now anyway. 
As Tess gently began to cut the wrapping, taking care not to destroy the binding vines on the paper, she started to croon a little humming song. Sybil recognized one of Hulda's binding, unbinding melodies. Good idea, said Sybil. Just be sure to not unbind it. I'm letting them know that I'm Tess and you're Sybil and we want to meet them. Good, Sybil nodded. She looked relaxed, but ready. The paper was unfastened and revealed more packaging underneath. The box wasn't very big and weighed very little. Twine was tied around more paper on the box, and a note from Gudrun was under the twine. Tess eased the note out and opened it up. Dear Tess, I'm sending this little gift to you on the recommendation of Auntie Hulda, she asked me to keep an eye out for something magical for you that would both test you and continue your training. You can imagine I was very worried that I might find something that wouldn't be right, so Hulda put a spell on me to guide me. When you open the package, that spell falls off of me, but that is beside the point, I think. I found this gift at the Diesablot Fair in Asbjergi. It's old and very pretty in itself, but what is inside is Hulda's test for you. I'm not allowed to say any more, except tell me everything later. All my love, Gudrun. Tess looked at her mother and said, Now I'm very nervous. Isn't Asbjergi the elves' capital in Iceland? Yes, no humans live there, only elves and Vettir. A Disablot market in Aspergi means super magical items found almost nowhere else, right? That's right, Tess. It could be anything, or anybody, rather, and Hildur the Goblin Cat didn't like it much. Well, who does she like much except you and Hulda? That might not mean anything. Tess laughed, for it was true. Hildur only tolerated her mother, Sybil. What do I do? Open it, and we'll see what's there. I think that's safe enough, I hope, her mother laughed. Hildur wouldn't hurt me, would she? Sybil thought carefully about how to answer that. Not as an intention, but as a byproduct of a mistake on your part, it could happen. It won't be fatal, but it could be painful. Tess looked like she was about to cry. Oh, Tess, I'll be here to help. Don't do anything rash. Don't let your comforting side make decisions, for whoever is in here is pretty tricky in a certain kind of way that makes me wonder if it's a djinn. Tess completed her thought for her. Yes, it seems likely it could be. Both of them took a deep breath. Mom, have you ever met a djinn before? I have, actually. I was older than you when I did. Did you meet them through Hulda? No, it came about in a different way. I learned a lot, though. Tess could see her mother looked faintly pink. I'll tell you about it when you're older, Tess. What's important now is to open the package and meet our new guest. Is that how we're going to approach it? I mean them? 
Yes, it's best to be the ones who set the tone and the stage for a meeting. I guess that would be better than, oh, look, Mom, a pretty bottle. I wonder what's in it. Whoops. Yes, laughed her mother, something like that. Okay, let's recenter ourselves. I'm going to draw one more rectangle around it. And this one I want to reveal anything hidden, anything necessary to see, and anything set on a hair trigger. Be careful with the twine, Tess. That rectangle completed, Tess untied the twine. It was clear that the twine was part of the binding for she felt curious energy currents moving as she unwrapped the twine. The package was quiet now, though Tess wasn't at all sure what that might mean. The twine removed, more paper was next. There were no markings on this. Tess used the knife to slice through the taped ends. I hope you know what you're doing, Auntie Hulda, she muttered. The box wasn't taped, but instead was a gift box sort of box with ornate paisley design on it. I have the feeling I'm going to like the box more than what's inside of it, Tess said. We'll see. She lifted off the lid and saw what looked like silk material stuffed into the box. When she put her hand on the material, she could feel the shape of something swaddled in it. Not big at all, she said, gently drying out the fabric. Yards of whisper-thin silk fabric came out of the box, eventually revealing an ornately decorated, hand-blown glass bottle. Looks like a perfume bottle, said Sybil. Egyptian, I think. The glass was amethyst-colored with gold trim and swirling decorations. It had a slight aura of smokiness around it. Tessa's eyes were big as she gazed at the bottle. Sybil knew that look all too well. Tess was already enraptured by the bottle and whatever was in it. Before she could say, let's call Hulda, Tess had impulsively drawn out the stopper from the bottle, releasing not just a cloud of amber and oud perfume, but a young male gin with black curling hair and slanting amethyst eyes. Tess said, oh, and disappeared before her eyes with him in a swirl of violet smoke. Hildur howled desolately from behind the closed still room door. I love the story. And I'm very curious about Tessa's mother and her adventures with the gin. <laughs> but perhaps that's something we all get to hear about when we're older. So. And, and it wasn't her story. <laughs> right. It was Tessa's, it was Tessa's story. Right. I love the package and I love everything about that arrival that really foreshadows that it's something to be careful with, which is always a good practice around a mysterious package of interesting origin. And I like how it really sets the stage for the magic and the initiation that will take place for Tess in this moment. So I really love that. I loved everything about it and really felt like um, I was there looking at it curiously, wanting it to be opened, Pandora's box. 
I completely agree. The box was absolutely beautiful. And I really, really wanted to know what happened with the gin with the, with the mom. Yeah, <laughs> I must know. Uh, but then again, I guess we're going to have an equal kind of one. And I wondered, uh, yeah, I wondered if you prep your daughter for a gin encounter. I suspect that Sybil thought that she was a little young for that preparation. So I think that the test is proving to be quite precocious in all ways. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Tess is a really wonderful teacher of etiquette and acute awareness. Right, until her hand went onto the bottle and then that allure became too strong for her, even after all that preparation. She's still a young girl. <laughs> I love how the package came with a smell that would make anybody, regardless who it was, want to open it. Whether it was a cat in this case, <laughs> that opening was its primary goal, to be uncontained. Very beautiful. And I look forward to hearing more about what happens with her and where she is. What I'm curious about, because I certainly don't know yet, is what Hilda was thinking. <laughs> so that, for me, that's going to be interesting to find out. Right. And what spell was she under to send such a gift? Was it part of the glamour? Did she send that gift? We'll find out. Yes. We'll find out. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for uh, making us be excited to hear more because we certainly are. Thank you. It was beautiful. Thank you. And now, C? Okay. Love to hear your story. An unfortunate incident involving a hungry but passionate aquatic bird will thwart a desired romance. Quinn states, pushing a toe near the edge of the containment pentacle. No. I reply, no what, Megan, my client, a woman in her 20s, asks, leaning forward. Sorry, um, he's attracted to you, but I focus. What do you mean? Will he go out with me tonight or not? Quinn shows me them enjoying a candlelit dinner at an upscale restaurant. Then I hear a sound effect, like nails on a chalkboard. Yes, he'll go out to dinner, but you have lots of options. Let's look at whether he's the rest person for you or not. He's sweet and sensitive. Is he my soulmate? Quinn opens up an image of a sea of people, mostly men. Soulmates grow your soul, I say. Few have them as romantic partners, and that's good. The last thing most people need is a series of constant soul-level challenges in their home. It's the opposite of comfort and support. Luckily for you, there are lots of people who could love and care for as well as support you. Are any of them in my life now? Megan asks. Quinn scoffs and shows me a barren desert scene. Not that I would recommend, I respond, moving the timeline forward six months. You'll meet one in about four or five months. And if you choose not to go that way for whatever reason, there's one more in nine months or so, and at least three or four more in the next few years. So I really wouldn't worry. And he's one of them? 
Quinn shows me the two of them feeding each other bread until he's accosted by a small, somewhat hysterical waterfowl. A duck? I mutter, irritated. The vision morphs and I'm further into the future, seeing my client through her date's eyes and feeling dismayed while hearing distant quacking sounds. I'm here to advise you, not tell you what to do, I say. I believe you will have the opportunity to date him. I do not see a long-term relationship for the two of you at this point, but that said, the weird is always in flux and there is such a thing as free will. Great, Megan exclaims. I'll work on flowing that weird my way. Thank you, and thanks to your helpers, she says, getting up to hug me before heading to the door. We make an appointment for the next week, and I walk her out. Did you like the duck touch? Quinn asked me when we're alone. I threw that one in just for you. Limit yourself to the truth, I instruct, for the third time this week. Last week, Quinn ran into an afrite who convinced him that enhancing his prophecies made them more entertaining. So he showed me a torrential wind blowing away a CV during an ill-fated job interview on Monday, then a runaway vacuum during a pet anxiety reading on Tuesday, and here it is Wednesday with the aromantic duck. He was always going to feel that way when he saw her again, he states matter-of-factly. Take a break. Pardon? I need the truth, the pertinent truth, and nothing but the pertinent truth. This making stuff up to entertain yourself cannot fly. Take a few days and get it out of your system. He stares at me, appalled, like there's any other way this could have gone. It was true, he says. She was going to go on the date, and it was going to go badly. I was just showing you in a fun way. No, I say. I care for and respect you, but no, this is sacred space. I refresh my boundaries and Quinn is gone. I summon Noor for our next appointment and the rest of the week goes smoothly. But then Megan's next appointment comes around. You should have seen it, she exclaims as soon as I open the door. There are deep scratches down her face. It was crazy. We went to this great new Italian place, very romantic. I wanted to sit outside to see the water. So we get our bread and olive oil and he's telling me all about his friend who recently passed. I felt so intimate. I wanted to comfort him. So I lean in and I put my head on his shoulder. He asks if I like bread. And when I say yes, he dips some in olive oil and goes to feed me. Megan mimes this out as she talks. Just then, this beautiful mallard swoops in and tries to grab it, but he won't let go. They fight it out with the duck thrashing everywhere, doing this, she points to her face. You are so right. He is not the best one for me. And I thought he was kind and sensitive. He fought a duck. She rolls her eyes. We continue the session and Nora helps me find her best career path. But as soon as she's gone, I release Megan's healing circle and open up a personal one to contact Quinn. He arrives in the guise of a duck. Was it you? I ask without effect. Being contentious will get me nowhere. It's still me, even now, Quinn replies. Did you attack Megan and her date? No, Quinn answers. I have better things to do with my time. You said you threw in the duck just for me, I respond. I did, Quinn states, eyes lighting up. You mean there was actually a duck there? Yes, pretty much like you showed me. We both gasp. I look to Quinn as he looks to the other realms, his face growing increasingly distressed his form growing increasingly small. Show me, I command, invoking the pentacle's power. 
He blushes and smiles defensively like a child caught feeding his dinner to the dog. And there's Jack at his job interview. The sunlight streams through the window on the edge of the airfield while his employer taps on large stacks of paper. Suddenly there's a huge crash as the window shatters into pea-sized faceted balls and a propeller bursts through, lodging itself in the floor by Jack's foot. The piles of paper are distributed whirlwind style throughout the room and down the associated hall while the two men quake, wipe themselves down, and half a dozen people come running in to rescue them for what has already happened. The vision morphs, and Horatio, Judy's black and white manx, evades her as she closes the door to lock him in the bedroom. A moment later, he tears desperately from room to room the terrorized victim of her new automatic cleaning appliance. And finally, the duck incident. Quinn has become very, very small. I could hold him in my palm if it were safe to let him out of the pentacle. In the guise of a three-inch clown, he stares down at his own tapping foot in checkered oversized shoes. I clear my throat and wait. Okay, he eventually squeaks up at me. We will do it the boring way. The phone rings and it's Bob, my next client. It's his first appointment and he starts the way most of them start. There's this woman I work with. I'm thinking of asking her out. Show me, I silently convey to Quinn, who promptly gives me a vision of a lovely romantic date as seen from inside their water glass. I really enjoyed your story. I loved all the water birds in it. <laughs> and well, I really did because they are they are about divination and they are about the far seeing. So I love that, that that element was present, yet that's really not why they were there. <laughs> Especially not the duck. Right. And I'm curious about the relationship that the reader had with Quinn. Was it Quinn that was the magical? Right, Quinn was, Quinn was the djinn, which right. I didn't realize rhymed until just now. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> Quinn the djinn, certainly. <laughs> He tricked you. <laughs> well, I was thinking gins are often so old, old in the sense that they've lived for a long time. And to be working with this woman doing the same thing over and over, <laughs> I can see where making things more interesting becomes an attractive proposition. Right. A thousand years of does he love me, does he not? Oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> that would certainly be reason enough to change the lines of weird just there. <laughs> Somebody give me a duck, anything, a bread eating. We have a duck, a bread eating. Yes, perfect. <laughs> but the, the difficulty being if he makes something up, his power makes it so. Is yeah. Exactly. I was quite fond of him, actually. Yeah. Me too. I liked the reader, too. I mean, I enjoyed her boundaries and her no-nonsense approach to her business, too. And in this case, a little element of phenomena, though funny, may not be ideal. <laughs> And the reader will be the one that gets blamed. You should have seen it. So I'm curious about the last couple that 
met at work? Were they truly meant to be or was this <laughs> under the influence? Um, no, no, he... In Will my we mind, ever know? Well, yeah. In my mind, Quinn doesn't change the outcome. He just makes the journey more interesting. It's a different kind of integrity. <laughs> Maybe an artistic no integrity. Mm -hmm. Well, it keeps things fun and we certainly need that. Mm -hmm. So I like the sight of the gin bringing delight under whatever circumstances necessary, which colors things into the truth, I think in many ways. So it's very welcomed. Well, thank you very much for a wonderful story to see. Thank you, C. And now Gabriella. Yes. My story is called The Dancing Sands. There are many stories about the djinn. Some are terrifying, some are heartbreaking, some liberating, but always with great consistency, they are full of magic. For one cannot speak of the djinn without invoking the elements of air, fire, and winds the mystery of hidden desires, the realms most familiar to these powerful beings. This particular gin story begins with me. One of my favorite memories from childhood is that of traveling on the train with my father from Cairo to Aswan. The trips were long, about 15 hours, and Papa would often complain about his back hurting from sitting in the uncomfortable seats. But for me, it was a great adventure. For one, I got to be whoever I wanted to be and nobody would know. Safely hidden under my veils, only my eyes peering out to observe the world around me, the interesting people on the train and the vast desert sands outside my window. My father was a coin merchant who specialized in rare and antique coins and gems. You wouldn't know it by looking at him for he dressed very plainly and never let anything go to waste, which meant that his sandals were as worn as the dry earth itself. The same rule applied to me and my appearance, if not more so. My tunic, skirt, and shawls ranged in colors of brown, black, and charcoal gray, so I would not stand out or be noticed in any way. This seemed of great importance to my father when we traveled, blending in, unnoticed, safe, and visible. Our family was one with many secrets, and I only knew a few as I was reluctantly told by my grandmother to quiet my boundless curiosity and questioning. It was also clear that she only told me a handful of stories to keep me from making up my own, as my imagination has always been active. I knew that I was the first girl that was born into the lineage on my father's side in over 100 years. I was also the first child that was born healthy unlike my father and his father and his father before him, who all had a mysterious condition that curved their spines like an arched bow. By the time my father was 40, he had to use a cane to support his twisted frame and give him balance when walking. The pain he experienced was at times quite debilitating and it twisted his once soft features into a hardened mask that aged him in appearance beyond his years. But none of that stopped him from his travels or trading, which was something between a passion and an obsession he could never set aside, 
His eyes lit up when he came upon rare coins or pieces of ancient gold, as if he was discovering forgotten worlds or lost cities. At those times, he looked young and handsome again, just for a moment, under the illusion of the treasures revealed in the currency he was trading. This ability for creating illusion made him an incredible merchant. He was able to sell and trade with an uncanny luck and ability, negotiating with pure magic. Nobody stood a chance with him. People sold him the coins he wanted and bought the ones he wanted to sell, every time. Perhaps with the same tactic, he enticed and married my mother. Surely in his youth, he was even more capable of getting what he wanted. And from what I hear, my mother was a great beauty and had many suitors, but it was my father she married. Sadly, shortly after my birth, she left him and me. Reasons for her departure have always been kept from me as if behind a heavy iron door, impenetrable, immune even to my own relentless inquiries. As any child, I wondered if my mother left because of me. Was it something I had done? Was I an incredibly difficult infant that she was not capable of loving me enough to stay? My father never said a word about it, but my grandmother assured me that I was a lovely baby and that my mother left because she couldn't understand or reconcile the ways of her family and her place in it. Somehow I felt this wasn't exactly true and there was so much more to the story, but that I may never know. Besides being raised without a mother, my childhood was happy. We lived close to the desert and far from town where I could run freely and play as I pleased, coming in midday to help my grandmother make bread in our clay oven and eat it freshly puffed from the coals with her delicious apricot chutney. I know I drove her crazy with my comings and goings, but I couldn't help it. The desert air was so enticing, hot, and it called to me to run and dance without abandon. Ari, Ari, Arisa, she would say as I ran out of the house again with my head veils coming loose and my hair taking off behind me. You are like the wind, child, creating storms in my kitchen. Slow down and cover your head. What if someone sees you? No one will see her mother. We don't get any visitors coming by, I could hear my father say as I drifted past him. Besides, there will be plenty of time for her to keep herself covered. Aye, that's what I'm afraid of. Her untamed nature will only be harder to manage as she grows older. And she is a strong-spirited child and will only be met with more heartache as she learns about the boundaries of our world. And this was very true. Boundaries have always been most challenging for me. Rules, traditions, fears, they all felt like a cage that grew tighter and tighter around me, like my father's crooked bones. They didn't hurt my body, but they certainly stifled my spirit. By the time I was a teenager, our open, isolated area grew less so as people built closer to us and visitors did come by more often, which meant I had to stay near the home and not roam on my own in the deserts like I used to. Also, as a young woman now, it was not proper for me to be walking on my own, unchaperoned. And since my father had trouble walking and my grandmother was aging, I was bound to stay home, mostly. My only outing remained the train journeys to the market in Aswan, which I so loved. But even those trips became less frequent and my father became more reluctant taking me since I was no longer a child and began to grow attention from men 
no matter how simply clad I was. But just as he had his powers of persuasion, so did I, and I insisted to go with him, partially out of my own desperation of leaving the house, but more so to assist him and support him, since his physical ailments grew worse over time and he was in no condition to travel on his own. So no matter how hard he tried to stop me, I always came with. And here I was on the train, my only place of joy that remained unchanged from childhood. We traveled at night in order to get to the market at dawn in time to set up. The night offered another layer of mystery to our journey and awakened my senses. The dancing sands outside the window rose and fell like galloping horses, their heads turning to look at me as I stared at the breathing darkness beyond. How I longed to ride with them under the moonlight with my hair free and unbound. Would I ever be free, I wondered. Was that even possible for a young woman like myself? Would I ever find love and would I want to? Or would that be another way to keep me hidden, molded into a role of wife, mother, or of the beloved? At some point in my musings, my eyes became like water, and in that water I could see the sands taking other forms outside, and I could hear hissing voices, awake and very aware of me listening. Something in me stirred like a restless bird, its wings tapping against my heart and chest, moving into my throat, and bringing tears to my eyes. Something was calling, something was changing, the story of me will soon be unveiled. And with this fading thought, I fell asleep. The sunrise and Aswan arrived soon enough. Father with his weathered traveling case of treasures and I with our baskets of fabric to drape around the booth. Ah, the market, my home away from home. The tents draped in colorful, rich cloths displaying jewelry, clothing, pottery and sweets each merchant's booth like a world of its own, displaying the treasures inside. And for me, this was as expanded as my world would ever get, and I took in every moment. Surrounded by the familiar smells of spices and listening to the soothing chatter of the merchants and buyers, laughing, negotiating, bickering playfully. The day unfolded like any other market day, and I observe intently the activities around me. Later in the day, though, a powerful wind swept through the market. Swirling gusts of sand came in and the booth swayed back and forth. My father was made most uneasy by the sudden wind. Papa, it's only a storm. It's just moving through and it will pass soon. I can feel it, I said as I looked at the sky. It was almost dusk, so it was that ominous blue color foreshadowing the approaching night. I delighted in the strength of this wind and turned my face towards it, closing my eyes, a few wild strands of my hair escaping my veil. Let us pray it is only a storm, Arisa. Come, help me wrap up. We are done for the day, father insisted with an unusual urgency. And that was fine. I had noticed other merchants also appeared to be wrapping up. I looked one more time in the direction of the desert and saw a figure from a distance coming closer, heading our way, perhaps, moving in and out of focus like an oasis. Something about these movements fascinated me and I couldn't look away. 
It was a man. I could make this out now as he approached our tent. He was very tall and unusually shrouded, in a style much older than one you could see these days. His large eyes and long, graceful nose were visible, but his mouth, obscured by luscious layers of silk fabric of the deepest blue, a shame. For when he spoke, his voice rang like an intoxicating bell resounding across a mountaintop. I imagined the shape of his mouth would be just as exquisite as the rest of him. I couldn't help but stare at him hypnotized. I noticed the beautifully crafted rope belts that hung loosely around his hips with bells on each end and counted that there were seven of them. He noticed me paying special attention to this. One for each of the worlds I travel to, he said, addressing my unspoken curiosity. My father was very nervous around the man, or more accurately, scared. He motioned for me to stand behind him, out of sight. I wish for your daughter to stay, merchant, the man demanded. It is time for her to learn more about how currency is traded in your family. I know not what you speak of, stranger, my father mumbled and added, doing his best to smile through his nervousness. What is it that you want? I have plenty of rare and extraordinary coins from all around the world. I know that you're in possession of one very special treasure, the man said, and from the corner of my eye, I could sense my father freeze as the man's gaze was set on me. That treasure belongs to my family. It is not for sale, my father said quickly, attempting firmness, but his voice shook. I beg to differ, merchant. That treasure is not yours. You have kept it from us long enough. I have come to collect it. We have paid for it. The exchange was made. Leave us, my father said desperately. You have tricked us. Your family has only had sons for over 100 years. There's nothing natural or fair about it. I have come to collect what's mine. The lovely voice now changed to a hiss and seemed to bend the air around us and still time. Suddenly, the world got dark and a great nausea came over me along with the awareness that the treasure this beautiful and terrifying stranger was demanding was me. The deal was 100 years, my father gasped as he stood in front of me, trying to shield me from the man's penetrating gaze. The deal was the first daughter, old man, and she is ours, he said in a low growl that created a force that made my father's spine fold with an audible crack, and he crouched down in pain, trying to breathe. In that moment, it became clear to me that my father's strange illness the mystery of my mother's departure and my own fate were tied to this creature who stood before us. All the things I've longed for and longed to know, he held the answers to. And more importantly, I was certain that he would crush my father to death if he resisted any further. I had only one choice. So I lifted my father off the ground and I stood in front of him, meeting the stranger's eyes. I will go with you. Do not hurt my father. My voice was steady when our eyes locked. And in an instant, the time around us moved again as the stranger's eye softened. My horse is this way, and it's almost dusk. We will ride now, he motioned in the direction of the south. 
It's all right, father. Please do not weep, I said, feeling my heart sink into the despair that he was feeling. And yet, knowing that this moment was much bigger than he would ever offer to reveal to me, and only I could claim it. The stranger walked, turning his head to make sure I stayed close behind. The layers of his dark blue silk, tunics, and cloak like waves of water behind him, and I was in their pool, unable to turn or move any other way. We walked to the edge of the market where some of the merchant's horses waited. It wasn't hard to guess which horse we were about to ride. A stunning black Arabian with sharp pointed ears and blue sheen over its well-tended coat stood out the tallest and the last at the fence. The beast flared its nostrils sharply when we approached and shook his mane in preparation for journey. The man swept himself up onto the horse effortlessly and took out his hand, his fingers unusually long and pointed, and he reached it towards me. Reading my hesitation, he said, I will not harm you, Arisa, you have my word. Under one condition, I said, I want to sit behind you. As you wish, he said, and lifted me onto his horse behind him. Hold tight, this horse is very fast. You know my name, but what is yours, I inquired. In time, you will find out, he purred. And where are you taking me, I said, my curious nature more persistent than the fear of what would unfold for me. Home, he said. And we took off so fast that the storm moved through the ground again. And this is how my story of the djinn began, riding with one into the sunset across the dancing desert sands, my hair loosened from its veils, free and trailing wildly behind me. The end of part one. It's my suspicion that there are more than two parts in that. <laughs> more than two parts? Yeah, yes. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> yes, I love it, it's very beautiful. Thank you. It was very fun and intriguing and intoxicating to write. <laughs> it was incredibly beautifully written as always. And I loved all the textures and details and the, uh, the idea of ancestral obligation and strength. Also her own curiosity though, and her own, what, what will perhaps anyway, prove to be her essential nature that desires that freedom also, that desires something more than what was going to be her fate. Exactly. And to find out what her relationship is to the djinn will be very interesting. So I look forward to that. I do too. <laughs> for me, it was really about that longing that she had for, for being free in more ways than one. I mean, she's an extraordinary person because she doesn't really long for the same things that other people long for in the first place. And that will make her life both more difficult and more exciting and equal parts. And now there's this magical element to it. We'll have to see what, what if it makes her obligated more into binding or if it liberates her from it. True. I mean, we don't know the mystery of what the deal was. And 
how she plays into it. It does seem, though, as you've written about her and as you've described her, that she has djinn-like qualities herself. Indeed. And perhaps the father does, too. Yeah. Well, I very much look forward to hearing more. Thank you for introducing us to this beautiful heroine and this interesting family and the mysterious stranger. It's my pleasure. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.